Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a further exploration of the possibility Trump is blackmailing the Republican Party into submission with the implicit or explicit threat that he could run as an independent and take his MAGA followers with him, leaving the GOP in tatters, opening the way for a Democratic victory in 2024. Joining us is a Republican analyst, Jeffrey Caberservice, the Director of Political Studies at the Nixkanen Center in Washington, D.C., as well as the author of several books, including The Guardians, Kingman Brewster, His Circle, and The Rise of the Liberal Establishment, and Rule and Ruin, The Downfall of Moderation and the Destruction of the Republican Party, from Eisenhower to the Tea Party. Then we'll look into what the Biden administration can do to mitigate or undo the damage of the Supreme Court decision striking down Roe and Casey and speak with Nicole Huberfeld, a professor of health law, ethics and human rights at the School of Public Health and professor of law at Boston University School of Law. Her research focuses on the cross-sections of healthcare law and constitutional law with an emphasis on the role of federalism and spending power in the federal health care programs, especially Medicaid. She's also the co-author of Public Health Law and The Law of American Healthcare. Then finally, following the Supreme Court's decision to allow the Biden administration to end Trump's Remain in Mexico policy, we will examine what can be done to break up the callous human trafficking networks exploiting and endangering migrants on the southern border. Joining us is Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, a professor at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, whose research focuses on Mexico-U.S. relations, organized crime, immigration, border security, and human trafficking. She was recently the principal investigator of a research grant to study organized crime and trafficking in persons in Central America and along Mexico's eastern migration routes, supported by the Department of State's Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking of Persons. The president of the Association of Borderland Studies, her latest book is Los Zetas Inc., Criminal Corporations, Energy and Civil War in Mexico, and we'll discuss her study at Harvard's Belfast Center, Dismantling Migrant Smuggling Networks in the Americas. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, Jeffrey Cabot Service, who's the Director of Political Studies at the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C., as well as the author of several books, including The Guardians, Kingman Brewster, His Circle and the Rise of the Liberal Establishment, and Rule and Ruin, The Downfall of Moderation and the Destruction of the Republican Party, from Eisenhower to the Tea Party. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeffrey Cabot Service. Nice to be back with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Jeffrey, and uh, you're quoted in an article a recent article at The Guardian uh, saying, if we don't take action, American democracy may be nearing its end of its run. And you're referring to, of course, the select committee hearings that we've had, including the the last uh, bombshell revelations from 
the chief aide to Trump's final chief of staff, Mark Meadows. So given that stark warning that you've issued, Jeffrey, uh, how do you think those hearings are resonating, particularly amongst people like yourself, who, I don't know whether you've left the Republican Party, but you certainly don't want to be associated with Trump's Republican Party. I've been a Republican, and I still am registered as a Republican, but I've also been quite consistent in my opposition to Trump, precisely because from the very beginning, I saw that he had no real use for American democracy, uh, that in fact, he wanted to get his way, regardless of whatever the Constitution might say, or the rule of law. And I think those hearings, uh, the January 6th committee hearings, have borne out quite effectively the extent to which Trump doesn't care about democracy or the rule of law, and the ways in which he was willing to go outside of them and around them to try to retain office. And I definitely am afraid that uh, if he is the Republican Party candidate in 2024, that he will attempt to do the same, but more effectively next time around. Um, But I do wonder whether maybe the January 6th committee hearings might be moving opinion at the margins of the Republican Party. I don't think uh, a lot of Trump people are going to turn their backs on him. That's not the way that cults of personality usually work. But they may feel that it's time to move on to a candidate like Ron DeSantis, let's say, the Florida governor, who has a lot of Trump's approach, but maybe less of his baggage. Well, what we learned, though, from the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson was that Donald Trump wanted to go with the mob to the Capitol and he knew that the mob was armed and he wanted them to be in the uh, the gathering at his speech at the at the ellipse he told the secret services to take away the magnetometers and let the people in because he said if they're armed uh, they're not going to shoot me they're my people so he wanted to literally go with armed people to storm the capital physically in person we don't know exactly what his end game was maybe he would end up sitting in the in the dais chair in the Senate like the guy with the horns ended up sitting there. And we also learned about how angry he got when uh, the limo wouldn't take him with the mob, but rather back to the West Wing. This is a man who has, a, has engineered a coup, strategized, led this whole coup attempt, and then wanted to physically be a part of the assault on the citadel of American democracy and do God knows what with the crowd, this violent crowd. So aren't we talking about, you said, it's, you know, he doesn't has no regard for democracy. I mean, this is the behavior of a fascist thug, is it not? You know, these hearings have basically confirmed what we've known all along, which is that Donald Trump is a walking compendium of the deadly sins. Um, he has no real redeeming qualities whatsoever. He's completely unfit for office. Um, he has no self-control. He was perfectly willing, apparently, uh, to countenance the deaths of members of Congress, even of his own party, in pursuit of his uh, attempted coup. And seemingly, he was all for hanging Mike Pence as well, if that was what it took to overturn the election. So I don't think people are really in a great deal of doubt about who Donald Trump is at this point. But the real question is whether the Republican Party and particularly its elected members in Congress will turn against Trump. And I don't think there's any evidence that they will. They have become professionals, one might say, at rationalizing for who Trump is and what he aims to do and trying to explain it all away or at least ignore it. 
Well, they're also, I assume, because of this sort of tribal divide in the country, they're assuming that anything that the Democrats say is a lie and that the president himself, who's a Democrat, isn't even legitimate. So how much are they insulated from this information? Is there any way that it's ever getting through past the, the kind of Fox News bubble? You know, I don't think Republicans are going to pay a price in the short term for their continued support of Trump and their opposition to the January 6th hearings. Uh, as well you know, this is a terrible electoral environment for the Democrats. They seem almost certain to lose their majority in the House uh, in the fall elections. They may lose the Senate as well. Um, but the real question is, is the Republican Party in any way prepared to move on from Donald Trump? And like I said, there's some straws in the wind that suggest that although there won't be an open repudiation, there will be more and more uh, people distancing themselves from Trump, trying to say that Trump was a wonderful president and did all kinds of great things, but his time uh, has come to an end and we need younger, fresher blood. And I do see some signs of that happening. And again, I'm speaking with Jeffrey Cabasurfis, who's the Director of Political Studies at the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C., as well as the author of several books, including The Guardians, Kingman Brewster, His Circle, and The Rise of the Liberal Establishment, and Rule and Ruin, The Downfall of Moderation and the Destruction of the Republican Party, from Eisenhower to the Tea Party. So let's talk about that, because I, a few days ago I spoke with a biographer of Trump who's known him for years, David K. Johnson, and he brought up the idea that Donald Trump is, in, in effect, blackmailing the Republican Party by threatening that he could run as an independent. And that would be a disaster for the Republicans and a magic gift to the Democrats if, if the MAGA people split off from the Republican Party. And Trump clearly controls the MAGA people. Is that a realistic threat, do you think, that as DeSantis and others emerge because these people can't hold back on their ambitions. So they all want to run, not just DeSantis, but Nikki Haley and, and uh, former Secretary of State Pompeo and others. So what's going to happen if these people start getting some traction and if Fox News, which is starting to do, starts to sort of uh, promote Ron DeSantis? Isn't Trump going to have a tantrum and want to take his marbles and say, OK, if you, uh, you're not with me, then I'm going to walk off with my MAGA people. Well, Lord knows that Donald Trump is extremely prone to tantrums uh, and precipitate action. Um, and it's always been part of Trump's implicit threat against the Republican Party that he represents a very different constituency, that he gave uh, the Republican Party voters they otherwise wouldn't have had, and yet they're his voters, that they're MAGA voters, they're America firsters, they're not at all supportive of and in many ways hostile to the traditional Republican agenda. Um, and, you know, there's a fair amount of truth to that critique. And Trump might very well decide that he's going to take his ball and go home and perhaps run as a third party candidate um, if the nomination doesn't go to him in 2024. Um, and that would split the Republican Party and hand the victory to the Democrats. Um, Will that happen? Well, I don't know, because, you know, someone like Ron DeSantis is actually a, a creature and creation of Trump. Um, he rose to the Florida Republican nomination for the governorship because he was more willing to go even further in his devotion to all things Trump than any of the other candidates. He has governed as a kind of mini Trump, um, although he's also 
perhaps you might say innovated on the basic Trumpian populist model by, for example, going against um, um, homosexual teachings uh, in the schools, uh, as he claims that, that is happening. Um, but the point is, he actually is a contestant for that same Trumpian audience in a way that someone like Nikki Haley is not. Nikki Haley can't command the MAGA people at all. At most, she can appeal to some of the disaffected traditional Republicans. I think that's true to a lesser extent of someone like Mike Pompeo. Um, but you actually are seeing movement within the actual MAGA coalition of people who are looking favorably on DeSantis instead of Trump, in preference to Trump. And that's partly because he's younger. Trump is actually getting on in years. It's partly because he seems uh, as vigorous as Trump. And it's also partly because um, DeSantis could get elected fair and square and be in office for eight years uh, as compared to Trump. And DeSantis is simply not as divisive a figure yet in American life as Trump is. And I also think that, again, there's very, it's very difficult to get people to go on the record with this, but there's a recognition even within Republican circles that Donald Trump is a uniquely dangerous figure to American democracy, precisely because he has no capacity whatsoever for putting the country over his own individual interests. Um, DeSantis has all kinds of baggage, would present all kinds of problems, but I don't think he presents that same unique danger to American democracy. But my understanding, uh, Jeffrey, is that there's a possibility that Trump may soon announce that he's running for president, not so much to head off a indictment from the Justice Department once the January 6th committee's findings have been, and the report has been forwarded to the Department of Justice. There is, of course, the Office of Legal Counsel's long-standing decision, which we heard a lot about during the Mueller report years, was that you cannot indict a sitting president. So that obviously doesn't apply to Trump because he's no longer a sitting president. But if he were a presidential candidate, perhaps he might think that will give him a little cover. So is there a possibility that Trump may preempt DeSantis and these other candidates soon or sooner than they would announce and then be the front runner and then as the front runner are they going to run against him and if they do isn't he going to swap them down you know there's a lot of uh, sort of inside baseball discussion about when trump should announce his candidacy for the presidency assuming he's going to run and what the positives and negatives would be of announcing earlier um, i tend to believe that the advantages for trump would be in announcing earlier uh, certainly before the midterms. Uh, that way, if, as I assume, the uh, Republicans retake the House of Representatives, Trump can do a victory dance and claim that it was all his doing. Uh, and that would tend to freeze the field and would at least make it a little more difficult for someone like DeSantis to announce at that point. Uh, and it could well be also that um, even if the legal case against Trump would be unchanged by his status as a presidential candidate, the political case for taking legal or criminal action against him would actually be that much more difficult, um, given that it would inevitably would be perceived through much more of a partisan lens. Um, however, I think Trump has also benefited enormously from actually being out of the public eye, at least on a daily basis, in the way that he had back when he had a Twitter and a Facebook account. Um, his negatives have gone down to some extent, and his positives, at least with his base, have gone up. 
And it's kind of shocking the extent to which the entire Republican Party more or less is dancing to the Trumpian tune. You know, here we are two years after after January 6th. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I think no one can answer that question about when Trump will announce other than Donald Trump himself. And at this point, I have uh, given up on trying to predict what Trump will do because I'm not sure even Trump himself knows what he will do. So let's move then to safer territory in terms of what you might be able to predict. Let's go back to the erosion of support now amongst Republicans. It it may not be significant in terms of the numbers, but given that we're told that there are more independents in this country than there are Democrats and Republicans, what is happening amongst independents, do you think, in terms of them shifting away from Trump as a result of these January the 6th hearings? You know, I haven't seen any reliable polling as yet um, about the effects of the, the January 6th hearings on Trump. There is at least some relatively recent, perhaps anecdotal polling to suggest that independents have been turned off by what they've been aware of, but I don't know how many independents have actually been watching. What I do think is going on right now is a kind of a, 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 a clashing headwinds, if I can use a really bad metaphor, which is that on the one hand, uh, a lot of voters, and particularly independents, are very put off by uh, inflation, especially, uh, continuing chaos at the border, um, a perceived public disorder, an increase in crime, all the factors that seem to be working against Democrats this year. But on the other hand, there's this unknown factor of what the overturning of Roe versus Wade by the Supreme Court will have. Um, Polls do suggest that Americans, by and large, uh, by some pretty convincing margins, think this is not a good thing, that the Supreme Court should not have actually overturned Roe versus Wade. Uh, And independents are actually pretty significantly against this decision. Um, Whether this will actually change their vote, I don't know. Uh, But I think long term, this suggests that there's going to be a backing away, not just from Trump, but also from a Republican Party that seemingly uh, no longer really cares about public opinion, no longer wants to moderate its views in any way, no longer is interested in doing anything other than exactly what it wants. Uh, In that sense, the Republican Party is still Donald Trump writ large. Trumpism will continue to define the party, whether Trump is its presidential candidate or not. And that may be actually a fairly unappealing prospect to a majority of Americans. And Thursday's ruling, um, taking away the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to deal with global warming, which most scientists suggest is the most existential threat to our planet, to our children, our grandchildren. Is that? Do you think that's going to resonate or in, in the way that you just mentioned the abortion decision is resonating amongst uh, independents? You know, I um, would love it if uh, climate change rose to among the top issues for most uh, Americans, but unfortunately, the evidence suggests that it does not rise to that level, that even for people on the left, it's actually pretty far down the list of what they're looking to their individual representatives to do on their behalf. Um, I think ultimately, the the, uh, the Supreme Court decision in uh, this EPA West Virginia case uh, could have been worse. Um, that it could have basically taken away the ability of any kind of administrative agency to address large national problems. Um, While it's a damaging verdict, certainly the ability of the EPA to combat climate change, uh, it's not quite the debilitating ruling that a number of us had feared. 
Um, I think the ultimate answer to addressing climate change is um, going to be found uh, in what the climate itself does. Uh, as you know, Ian, I am from Florida, and I was back at the beginning of the month uh, of, of, of June in Miami Beach, and my car got inundated with four feet of water because essentially the climate is shifting and the Florida uh, groundwater can't handle it anymore. And South Florida increasingly is Republican territory. And if Republicans care all about their constituents and their needs, they are going to start addressing climate change. So I think that there actually will be movement on this despite the Supreme Court uh, and almost despite the way that uh, political polarization has unfolded in the last several years. Well, Jeffrey Campasitas, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's a pleasure to talk to you as always, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jeffrey Kappaservis, who's the Director of Political Studies at the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C., as well as the author of several books, including The Guardian's Kingman Brewster, His Circle and the Rise of the Liberal Establishment, and Rule and Ruin, The Downfall of Moderation and the Destruction of the Republican Party, from Eisenhower to the Tea Party. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking to what the Biden administration can do to mitigate or undo the damage of the Supreme Court decision striking down Roe and Casey. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Nicole Huberfeld, who is a professor of health law, ethics, and human rights at the School of Public Health and a professor of law at the Boston University School of Law. Her research focuses on the cross-section of health law and constitutional law, with an emphasis on the role of federalism and spending power in federal health care programs, especially Medicaid. And she's the co-author of Public Health Law and the Law of American Health Care. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nicole Huberfield. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And the abortion battle that's gone on for 50 years, or well, longer, I guess, it's certainly not over. I mean, that was the amazing thing in Alito's written opinion, that he felt that somehow or other he was going to end the rancor and division in this country. But I think the opposite is happening. But is the battle now moving away from abortion now to contraception? And will there be a battle over the availability of medical abortions via a pill? There's a lot to unpack there. So um, let me begin at the very topmost level, if you don't mind, which is to say that in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, the Supreme Court upheld Mississippi's law that tested the limits of Roe and Casey. And that law says that abortions are not available in Mississippi after 15 weeks of gestation, except to save the life of the pregnant person. So the Supreme Court upheld that law and in so doing overturned Roe, the 1973 decision and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the 1992 decision, which together are, were the, uh, the decisions that protected the right to privacy, which protected access to abortion. 
as you noted, Justice Alito pushed this back to the states and said this is something that belongs to the people and their uh, elected officials. And so now this is basically a battle of the states rather than uh, shutting down any further debate. I think this is only going to become worse. I think it's going to create conflict within states, between states, and between the states and the federal government. And although Justice Alito took great pains to say that his majority opinion did not have anything to do with other rights that are protected by the constitutional right to privacy. The way that the decision is written, it has opened the door to further challenges to rights that are protected by the right to privacy. And that includes, for example, the right to access contraceptives. And so this is why people are concerned that abortion quickly turns into contraceptives. There's more to it than that, actually, which is that for years, there's been some confusion over the nature of emergency contraception. Even though postcoital contraception is just that contraception, if you're a person who's already pregnant and has no effect on you, some state legislators seem to think that emergency contraception is an abortifacient, and so they've been trying to eliminate emergency contraception as well. And so that seems to be sort of the, the camel's nose under the edge of the tent, as it were, that if emergency contraception is jeopardized, then there may be other ways in which contraception quickly becomes jeopardized as well. But in this moment, all of the litigation that's occurring in the states is focused on whether or not state laws that pre-existed this decision that outlaw abortion or severely restrict it can come into existence immediately. Well, Justice Clarence Thomas, of course, wrote a concurring opinion where he felt that specifically Griswold, which is the contraceptive decision, and Lawrence, which is private sex between same-sex couples, and um, also gay marriage in Obergefell were also up for grabs. So that, I guess, has also ignited, surely, the concern over the medication abortion pill. Yes. Yeah, so Justice Thomas's concurrence, which, by the way, was not signed by other justices, does specifically state that he believes that there's no such thing as what the court has called in the past substantive due process meaning that the due process clause in the 14th Amendment and the Fifth Amendment protects not only procedural due process, but also that some rights are so important that they have what is called substantive due process, meaning it's extremely difficult for the government to ever take them away because they are fundamental rights. And Justice Thomas, for a long time, this is not the first time he's articulated this view. He's been saying this for, for many, many, many years. He has been saying there is no such thing as substantive due process. There is so, no such thing as this nebulous right to privacy that you find in cases like Griswold and Roe and Casey. And we should just start from scratch. We should just look to other clauses in the Constitution, like the Privileges or Immunities Clause in the 14th Amendment. And no other justice signed that opinion. But again, it is an invitation to enterprising litigators to come test the waters. And so this is why people feel concerned about his concurrence, because it specifically calls for more litigation on these matters. And as you rightly noted, all of these intimate relationships are related. These rights are interwoven. It's a patchwork. And so the right to procreate, the right to marry, the right to raise your children as you see fit, 
the right to access contraceptives, they're all part of a web of rights that are interrelated. And when the court pulled out the one thread of access to abortion, it started to weaken the rest of that web of rights. And again, I'm speaking with Nicole Huberfeld, who is a professor of health law and ethics and human rights at the School of Public Health and a professor of law at the Boston University School of Law. Her research focuses on the cross-section of healthcare law and constitutional law, with an emphasis on the role of federalism and spending power in federal health care programs, especially Medicaid. And she's the co-author of Public Health Law and the Law of American Healthcare. So let's talk a little then, Nicole, about, I guess, some anger and frustration on the part of Democrats in general, uh, and in particular, 34 senators um, led by Patty Murray of Washington, including um, Elizabeth Warren, Ed Markey of Massachusetts and others, they wrote to President Biden last Saturday, and I guess they were kind of putting me on notice. They're saying, now is the time for a bold action to protect the right to an abortion. Uh, They said that they appreciated the the speech that uh, Biden made um, the day after the ruling, but they felt that Biden has no time to waste and he, that he has, quote, the power to fight back and lead a national response to this devastating decision. So what's happening on that front? What's going to close the gap between anger and frustration on the part of a lot of Democrats and the Democratic leadership that is, at this point has not made it clear exactly what strategies they're going to employ? I think this is a very complex and and tricky area. Um, I think part of the answer lies in the remarks by Xavier Becerra, the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services that were made Tuesday, June 28th. And those remarks can be found on the Department of Health and Human Services website. Uh, the, the remarks made by Xavier Becerra indicated a number of actions that represent what the Biden administration is thinking about and doing somewhat concretely. So I think people have been waiting for the president to issue executive orders, but the secretary's actions reflect what is uh, a legally more stable approach, which is for the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services to make use of the tools that are already available in terms of the laws and regulations that already exist and in terms of money that already exists. So for example, making sure that medication abortion is actually available to uh, people who are enrolled in Medicaid, ensuring that the Office for Civil Rights in the Department of Health and Human Services is protecting patient privacy so that uh, people aren't spying on patients who are seeking reproductive care and then reporting them to the police, which would in fact be a violation of the law called HIPAA, Um, making sure that the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, which ensures that people get access to care in emergency departments, regardless of who their payer is, is not a source of excuses for turning patients away if, for example, they're suffering a miscarriage and need medical assistance in the moment. That might include things like access to a medication abortion, even in states that have tried to restrict that kind of access. Um, Trying to ensure that, for example, states are not excluding Planned Parenthood as a provider in Medicaid, which technically violates the Medicaid statutes, but has not been actively enforced by recent administrations in a particularly robust way. 
So the steps that the secretary laid out are the steps that the Biden administration is taking. I have seen some calls to the president to issue uh, a public health emergency. And uh, if you'd like to talk about that now, we can. I would be surprised if he does so for a variety of reasons. Uh, the number one reason in my mind is that the president is already in a bit of a tenuous relationship with the Supreme Court with regard to declaring public health emergencies. The public health emergency related to COVID still exists, but there's been a lot of uh, political and other chatter about whether that public health emergency should end. And the Supreme Court has told the the Biden administration that, for example, the eviction moratorium was not an appropriate use of the public health emergency authority. And so I think the Biden administration is treading carefully there for good reason. So what about Biden's remarks on the Friday after the decision came down, uh, where he said that he was also going to protect interstate travel, the idea that women would be going to uh, Greyhound bus stations to drive to a another nearby state where abortions were legal or or taking the abortion pill was legal. There's a possibility, is there not, Nicole, of having kind of vigilantes at bus stations asking to show us your papers? I mean, the, the Texas has put in these vigilante laws into their mix, which has alarmed a lot of people. So what concretely is being done in that arena? It is not clear to me what the Biden administration is doing to follow through on that promise. I will note that the concurrence by Justice Brett Kavanaugh specifically stated that states cannot prevent residents from traveling to other states to seek care under the Dobbs decision. And the right to travel is also not specifically articulated in the Constitution, but has been held to exist in a variety of different dimensions. And so I think where we stand right now, we can say the right to travel is a constitutionally protected right. And what it means is that states can't prevent their residents from leaving the state. And also it means that there are uh, other kinds of restrictions on state actions like you can't require a person to live in a state for a certain period of time to avail themselves of the benefits of living in that state. What this will do in terms of states trying to prevent their residents from seeking abortion services in other states is very much a gray area. And I suspect that the Biden administration is trying to figure out what kind of authority can be exercised. Broadly speaking, Congress has power under the clause we call the Commerce Clause in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3 of the U.S. Constitution to regulate matters of interstate commerce. But that would mean that the president is making use of an existing law to try to enforce the rights of people to travel. And it's not clear to me which law he would point to there. Well, there's a group a reproductive rights group called RAP, Women's Reproductive Rights Assistance Program. And what they do apparently is referrals from Planned Parenthood and other clinics for young women to travel and they pay their bus fare and and accommodations. And I'm just wondering whether groups like that can survive because, first of all, the clinics are being closed down, are they not? in a lot of these states with trigger laws, you know, and then you also have 
have the problem, I think, of even with the uh, medicated abortions, are some states requiring that you have to take the pill, or at least you even have to call for the pill from the state that hasn't struck down uh, abortion rights. Is that right? Yes. So this is another aspect of the law that's quite complicated right now, because the FDA has long had special protocols in place for medication abortion that were not necessarily supported by evidence. And some of those extraordinary rules were loosened during the pandemic so that it was no longer required that a person have an in-person visit with a physician so that a person no longer be required to have an in-person visit with a physician in order to be prescribed medication abortion. And it also made it so that a person doesn't have to go to a physician's office to be to pick up the medication abortion, that it could be mailed in the U.S. mail. And pharmacies are now places where people can pick up medication abortion pills as well. So this relaxation of the rules of the protocols as to how a person obtains the pills that create a medication abortion, which sometimes people still think of as RU486, opened the doors to use of telehealth for people to communicate with a physician in a different place in order to get a prescription for medication abortion. However, many states are trying to restrict access to medication abortion, and some of them are trying to create rules that are different from the FDA's protocols. Arguably, those rules, like Texas, I think, is saying you can only use medication abortion up to seven weeks of pregnancy, whereas the FDA has said it's available up to 10 weeks of pregnancy. Texas can't change the FDA's protocols, and that conflict very likely is preempted by federal law. On the other hand, it's less clear whether states can prevent physicians licensed within their borders from engaging in telehealth to facilitate things like medication abortion. Licensure of healthcare providers is a state-by-state -state matter, and the federal government cannot do very much about that, frankly. And I think this is part of the reason that some people want the president to declare a public health emergency, because when a public health emergency is declared by the secretary of HHS and the president also declares an emergency or disaster, there are certain regulatory waivers that come into play that can temporarily loosen restrictions like licensure requirements. But in the case of medication abortion, again, this remains a gray area because I, I, I suspect we're going to see litigation over this soon as to how far states can go to create their own protocols when the FDA has already put quite a lot of time, thought, evidence-based research into deciding what the protocols should be in this moment in time. But didn't the Attorney General Merrick Garland recently make a statement saying that the FDA rules are in place and the DOJ will defend them? Yes, he did. And that's important because every attorney general, whether federal or state, has discretion to decide what they will prosecute and what they will not. And so that's the administration articulating a priority. Well, Nicole, let's stay in touch because I, I started out with the battle metaphor at the beginning, and clearly the battle is only beginning, which, of course, is in stark contrast to 
Alito's opinion that this uh, ruling that he wrote would solve the problems and settle the issue and and stop the division in this country, which of course is seems to be increasing uh, at warp speed. I thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here. And again, I'm speaking with Nicole Huberfeld, who is a professor of health law, ethics, and human rights at the School of Public Health and a professor of law at the Boston University School of Law. Her research focuses on the cross-section of healthcare law and constitutional law, with an emphasis on the role of federalism and spending power in federal healthcare programs, especially Medicaid. And she's the co-author of Public Health Law and the Law of American Healthcare. We can take a brief station break and back examining what can be done to break up the callous human trafficking networks exploiting and endangering migrants on the southern border. Mother, should I trust the government? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, who is a professor at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, whose research focuses on Mexico-U.S. relations, organized crime, immigration, border security, and human trafficking. She was recently the principal investigator of a research grant to study organized crime and trafficking in persons in Central America and along Mexico's eastern migration routes, supported by the Department of State's officer, Office to Monitor and Combat Traffic of Persons, the president of the Association for Borderland Studies. Her latest book is Los Zetas, Inc., Criminal Com- Corporations, Energy and Civil War in Mexico. And she's also the author of a new study at Harvard's Belfast Center, Dismantling Migrant Smuggling Networks in the Americas. Welcome to Background Briefing, Guadalupe Correa Cabrera. Thank you very much, Ian, for the invitation uh, to discuss things of great importance uh, for our region. Well, thank you for joining us. And we've seen tragedies on our southern border near San Antonio. Uh, 53 people died in a trailer truck, 18-wheeler that was abandoned, and also in um, the Mediterranean or the Atlantic, uh, right off Gibraltar, this Spanish islands just off the coast of Morocco. A lot of African immigrants drowned, and already the Mediterranean has seen many, many uh, drownings of immigrants to the point where the Pope himself referred to the Mediterranean as, as a graveyard. So this is a global phenomenon, is it not? The human smuggling, but also the tragedies associated with the callous nature of the human smugglers. Absolutely. This is a global phenomenon that has to do with inequality, poverty, violence, uh, armed conflict, and bad uh, migration policies, and um, mainly the lack of legal pathways in the global north uh, for unskilled labor when there is a demand for that type of labor. It's important to consider that, to consider inequalities, and to consider the responsibility of all countries, of the global south and the countries of the global south and countries of the global north. But absolutely, uh, people from different countries in the world are trying to make it to the global north, either United States or 
some particular countries in Europe. And lately in the United States, we cannot just talk about Central American migration or U.S. bound migration from Central America, but U.S. bound migration coming from different parts of the world, Eastern Europe, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, and the African continent. You know, we have uh, observed greater outflows of people from from a number of regions, a number of countries, and a very, you know, expanded network of human smugglers that have facilitated human mobility and have facilitated this journey that can many times become extremely perilous, extremely dangerous, and can end up in dozens of people dead. So let's talk about the Supreme Court decision that came down a few days ago that allows the Biden administration to get out from under the Trump border restrictions on immigrants declaring amnesty. And it was based upon a CDC decision related to COVID. So what's likely to happen on the border now that Biden is free to make his own decisions? Well, I mean, we're talking mainly first about the Migration Protection Protocols, the Stay in Mexico program, and the end of, uh, eventually, of the, of the, of Title 42. Um, it is important to, I mean, you know, to remember that during the Trump era, a number of policies, including metering, MPP, Title 42, didn't stop people from continuing doing this, this, this journey. And um, the lack of legal migration pathways for unskilled labor is what it's costing that people are making use of the services of human smugglers that put them at great risk. Absolutely. Um, those, all these restrictions are making people to go into you know, more dangerous terrains, but also enforcement itself. These restrictions didn't stop people from trying to make it uh, helped by the by the smugglers. However, we have a number of factors that explain irregular migration, that explains undocumented migration, because uh, we are not just talking about you know a certain policy, Title 42, the Migration Protection Protocols. We're talking or stay in Mexico program. We're talking, I mean, that is MPP. We're talking about, uh, I mean, fundamental roots or, um, you know, explanations that have to do with structural phenomena, poverty, inequality, um, weak political and economic institutions. We also have to do, to think about, uh, you know, the, the broken U.S immigration system, the broken asylum system, and the loopholes that are found by smugglers to convince people uh, to get to the United States and apply for asylum, even though we're talking about economic migrants. Not everybody who's applying for asylum is, 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 going, to, is going to be granted asylum because they, many of them do not have a case. We have a number of problems, a number of causes, root causes that need to be addressed. So addressing just one of the, I mean, of the causes of uh, the hiring of smugglers is not going to solve this problem. 
absolutely. This decision is going to, um, you know, probably elevate a very small percentage, but it's going to drive more people trying to make it because restrictions are still in place, because still we have to, to think about the, the lack of legal migration pathways, um, you know, thinking about the availability of a number of positions of jobs for unskilled labor. Their jobs are available, but not the legal pathway for unskilled labor. So that is mainly the issue, you know, solving this um, this broken uh, asylum system or, or fixing the, the broken asylum and broken immigration system is uh, it's, it's very important. In the case of the Americas, we're talking about also what is happening in Europe, the inequalities, the wars, a number of factors. So, you know, this is not going to solve in any form the, well, I mean, maybe in a very, very small percentage or a very small form, but at the same time, it's going to be driving more people uh, because the migrant smugglers know how to convince people, know how to communicate that one good thing for them is this Supreme Court decision and the communication that the communication that they use convince more people at a short period of time because people usually learn how these things are. But some people enter the United States. So it's not going to solve any problem. It's maybe going to cause more problems because there will be probably more incentives that will be communicated by the smugglers to to irregular undocumented migrants. So, Guadalupe, let's talk about your study then at the Harvard's Belfort Center, Dismantling Migrant Smuggling Networks in the Americas. You've made it clear that it's not going to solve the problem, neither is the Supreme Court decision uh, allowing Biden to get rid of Trump's stay in Mexico program. So, but what could it do? I mean, is it possible that you could dismantle these smuggling networks and arrest these callous people? Yes, it is. It's it's part of an overall strategy, understanding that going after these networks or dismantling these migrant smuggling networks is not going to solve the overall problem, um, because we need to address the root causes of irregular and undocumented immigration. We have to deal with the broken immigration and asylum system. But these networks need to be dismantled. This needs to be a priority for uh, the U.S. government in collaboration with other governments, because this is a transnational um, phenomenon, a transnational problem. We need to deal with this as transnational organized crime, considering the operation, considering the amount of money, considering the risks and the crimes that are committed along the migration routes and the connection of migrant smugglers with, uh, you know, cartel members or other criminal organizations. This is a, this needs to be um, a priority. This needs to be operating at the same time that other strategies are are being put into place. Is it possible? Yes. I, there needs to be political will, resources, and a focus on dismantling these networks. Social network analysis, collaboration with a number of countries, particularly with the Mexican government. It is going to be difficult, but this is putting a lot of people at great risk. And the United States, uh, you know, can be a leader in in the effort 
um, to deal with this. But there needs to be a specific plan. There needs to be a budget to do that and a concerted effort to, to deal with this at different levels. The coordination of U.S. law enforcement agencies and at the same time, the collaboration between the United States and other countries is extremely relevant. So it is possible, but uh, there has not been a the political will yet to deal with this. It, it, this is a you know billion dollar um, business, and many people benefit from. Uh, some people benefit greatly from from this. Uh, but it's possible. Yes, it is possible. It, it's 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 uh, it's going to affect the interest of a number of people. Maybe we're going to find corruption in a number of organizations, of agencies uh, in different parts of the world, but we can do it with, with, with the will and with, with responsibility. So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, Guadalupe, you mentioned other strategies. The simplest way to solve this problem would be to get rid of the whole problem of illegal entry across the borders in usually in really dangerous territory where people die in the Arizona desert and just disappear and their bodies are eaten by wild animals. It's a horrible situation. If you had a regime in this country where people could easily go through legal entry points with short-term visas to work, you said it's all about a shortage of unskilled labor in this country. We know here in California that everybody that picks our fruit is and vegetables, for example, or work in restaurants, they're, they're usually undocumented. So right. if you had a regime where people could freely go back and forth between Mexico and the United States, many, many of these migrants would prefer to live in their home country. No, as far as I know, they don't enjoy the decision to leave their homes and villages to come north. Uh, they do it reluctantly, and they do it out of necessity. But if you could make it more humane and more rational and get rid of all this xenophobia, it would it would solve the whole problem. You wouldn't need human smugglers if people could go through legal entry points on short-term visas. Absolutely. Uh, there is a comprehensive immigration reform proposal that has been, uh, I mean, put together uh, by members of the two parties in the United States. Unfortunately, electoral, the political process in the United States does not allow this to move forward. Comprehensive immigration reform does not mean to open the border for everybody who would like to, to cross uh, from one part, from one country to the other one. Of course, there are concerns about homeland security, but the existence of these legal pathways is important because the jobs are, um, you know, are available. The United States need these people to continue growing, to continue being great. Therefore, um, there needs to be a, a an overall effort that has already been in play. I mean, it has been on paper. There, the proposal is there. It's a bipartisan effort. However, this has this situation and the subject itself has been politicized, and the electoral periods have gotten in the way. And therefore, there's no um, commitment by any party because they are more committed to maintain their political positions and to win elections. Uh, 
that's 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 the issue. The the reality is that the paper that I wrote has to do with just one small part of the solution, and we need to solve this solution. This this issue. We I mean these people are making enormous amount of money and are putting people at risk and are also connected with a number of criminal actors, including drug trafficking organizations or other dangerous organizations. Uh, the borders cannot be completely open. The countries have, you know, certain mechanisms to make sure that 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 their their societies, their communities are going to be safe. And this is also a right of of people in every country. However, this system that is being put in place right now is is I mean has double standards because on the one hand you're accepting people to get into the country illegally because this is this is this is true not 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 any single person is illegal but the ways are sometimes irregular illegal without proper documentation and you give them a job but you pay them very little so this is very convenient for employers this is very convenient for big companies to pay very little to those that are invisible in the societies we all know that many people have written about that it's not about opening the borders uh, indiscriminately it means to do this in an appropriate way to um, to secure um, human lives and to make sure that that the countries also and the, their communities are are kept safe I mean we understand that there is a complicated geopolitical situation today and there is a war going on in Eurasia. We we know about the 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 invasion of Ukraine by Russia. We understand that at this point, you know, opening the borders is not a solution, but you know, uh regularizing the way that people that are really going to work can do this on a temporary basis, it's extremely important. And there are so many analyses about this, so many ways to deal with this. I just wrote about one part of the strategy, but there are so many good works that have been, um, you know, written or analyzed. I mean, so many analyses by the Migration Policy Institute, uh, the Pew Center, and a number of academics, scholars, political figures that that advocate for an improvement or for fixing this broken immigration system at the atmospheric level or I mean, even globally. Well, Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, I thank you so much for joining us here. I appreciate it. Ah, thank you very much, Ian, for the invitation to discuss an important issue. Thanks for the invitation. And, and for your very good questions. And enjoy the the 4th of July holiday. And, and again, I've been speaking with Guadalupe Correa Cabrera, professor at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, whose research focuses on Mexico-U.S. relations, organized crime, immigration, border security, and human trafficking. She was recently the principal investigator of a research grant to study organized crime and trafficking in persons in Central America and along Mexico's eastern migration routes, supported by the Department of State's Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons. The president of the Association of Borderland Studies, her latest book is Los Zetas, Inc., Criminal Corporations, Energy, and the Civil War in Mexico, and she's the author of a new study at Harvard's Belfast Center, Dismantling Migrant Smuggling Networks in the Americas.
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice Saying it's something to me One more.